This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. That's why I'm keeping the faith. Will investors keep the faith when it comes to Netflix? Here to tell us more is Bob O'Donnell. He is the president and the chief analyst for Technalysis Research based in Foster City, California. You can follow Bob on Twitter at uh, Bob O.D. Tech or Bobo D. Tech. Also joining us here in studio is Cameron Leach, reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow Cameron on Twitter at Cameron, K-A-M-A-R-O-N. All right, Cameron, I want to start with you. Yes. Just describe exactly what it is Netflix did that caused that big drop on the market open today. Of course. So Netflix, you know, coming into second quarter earnings, they the hype was there for Wall Street. However, the subscriber net additions, they fell short. And that's likely just because of the hype that was there. However, it's not necessarily that the, the numbers were off. They were just a million fewer than expected from Wall Street. Bob O'Donnell, do you believe that that's the reason why investors walked away at the open from Netflix stock that they reported, what, about 5 million new subscriber ads? And the estimate was for about six and a quarter. Yeah, I mean, look, we all know it's always about expectations, right? I mean, if they had expected four million and delivered five, we'd obviously have a completely different story. So, it's really a question of the expectations that were set, um, and when you, especially on a on a super high growth stock and in a very high profile name like a Netflix, people are, are particularly sensitive to those. Uh, kinds of forecasts. Now, mind you, Netflix has a history, unfortunately, of missing its own forecasts, and, and we've seen you know, swings in the past based on those misses. But, you know, th- there are these fundamental questions, I think, that underlie this, uh, not just the number miss, but are they hitting a wall? You know, is there a concern? I mean, when we think about media companies in general, uh, you know, uh, at a certain point, it becomes a hit-based business. You know, you've got a, you know, a hit, and, and things do well, and then you don't have a hit, and, you, and things don't do well. So there's also been a lot of speculation on, do they have the right content mix? Are they doing you know enough good news shows? They're spending way more than anybody on original content, to their credit, um, as these bigger media companies start to branch off and offer their own streaming services. But you know, those are the kind of big-picture questions that are, are underlying, I think, some of these questions. Cam, this is a stock that more than doubled since the beginning of the year. And then the first hint of any kind of negative uh, numbers, uh, a lot of investors head for the hills. Uh, What have you heard about Netflix being, let's quote unquote here, a bubble? Well, from my research, even even speaking with Bernstein's uh, Todd Younger earlier today, uh, he said everybody knew the day was something. The day was someday come when Netflix will fall short of quality subscriber ex- expectations. Now, when you keep these expectations so high, it's, you're bound to miss at some point. However, I think, I think everything will be fine, just from my, my recollection. Hey, Bob, I just want to uh, sort of do the numbers if we can, right? I mean, uh, you're talking about maybe, what, 100 million users for Netflix paying uh, anywhere from 9.99 to maybe 12.99 a month, right? 
Right. Okay, you can have six devices registered to one account at any time so they could change that policy and make more money. They don't really have to have hits. They just have to have people subscribe, don't they? <laughs> well, look, they have to have both, right? And, and you're right. There are a number of, of levers that Netflix can pull in terms of driving revenues forward. Um, the number of devices, the number of people who share an account. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that they could theoretically do to continue to drive that. But, you know, fundamentally, there is that question at some point where you say, after, you know, you hit this huge number, as we we're, as we're just discussing, you know, uh, what? How do you maintain that? And and that's when you start to wonder about the mix of content and what happens over time. Uh, maybe it's too early to really worry about that at this point because again, there are these other levers that they can pull. But you know, underlying the the thought process of how Netflix continues to maintain the the place in people's minds that it's had, I think those questions absolutely do arise. Hey Cam, can we talk content for a second? I know that the the biggest anticipation in my house is when is Stranger Things coming back for season three? All right. So so what do they do they have stuff on tap? Do you think that they have that kind of range that Bob was talking about to keep people and to attract new people? Yeah. From reports, it seems that they have a good context content mix for the rest of 2018. Now, a lot of analysts are saying that this second quarter earnings were a little bit softer because they didn't have as many uh, Netflix Netflix originals. But fourth quarter is supposed to be when they reveal most of their their big content. Stranger Things, third third quarter, fourth quarter, first quarter next year? I think it's highly anticipated among everybody. (laughs) (laughs) We're in a panic at the every house. Bob, do you know anybody that's ever canceled their Netflix subscription because they didn't like the programming? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I don't know personally, but certainly that's been talked about. And especially with binge watching, right, there are some people who will say, look, you know, I'll, you know, watch the show or shows I want to watch and just be done with it. Um, and because it's so easy, it's not like, you know, cable, um, TV and other sorts of uh, media subscriptions where you got to have boxes installed and people come out and and disconnect. This is a very quick on-off uh, kind of service, and so theoretically, again, as people get more savvy about this, that starts to change. As again, as we start to see more over-the-top offerings, as you know, as Disney, of, of course, has talked about doing their own. If they start to branch out, do more of their own content, we're going to have. It's going to get very confusing for people. You know that, unfortunately. The thing that everybody talked about wishing for, which is, oh, I just want to be able to pick exactly the channels or shows I want and pay for just those. If that comes to pass, it could be much more expensive. Bob, thanks so much. It's Bob O'Donnell. He's with Technalysis Research. And Cameron Leach is a reporter at Bloomberg News. He guides the largest health care provider in New York, an $11 billion organization, with 66,000 employees. His name is Michael Dowling, and he's the president and chief executive officer of Northwell Health. And he's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for for the invite. I'm delighted to be here. I want to know what's the toughest thing about getting 66,000 employees to all be pushing in the same direction? Well, the toughest, first of all, I mean, you, you have to make sure you have the right 66,000. And so everything comes down to having the right people in all parts of your organization, and that takes a long time. Uh, it's also wanting to having 
to make sure, for example, that you have consistency of strategy, that you know where you're going, and you're able to communicate it so that everybody knows the direction that the company is going in. And for example, um, what I do every Monday morning is I meet all new employees. So we hire about 150 people a week. So I spend two hours every Monday morning, which I've been doing for about 14 years, and meeting with all new employees from every part of the organization. And you don't start working with us until you go through this orientation. So I spend that time telling them uh, what's expected, what the values and the behavior should be, what the culture is like, where we're going as an organization, what our priorities are. And then it's also about selecting the right people in management positions, whether it's a supervisor or a lead manager or a top manager. Having the right people in the management positions is key because, remember, employees don't leave an organization. They leave their supervisor. So if you have a bad supervisor, employee leaves the supervisor, not necessarily leaves the company. So you have to have the right supervisor. So it's an ongoing process. Um, you have to be participatory, be involved, be available, be accessible, uh, and be able to communicate where the, where the organization is going. Michael Dowling, uh, you grew up in Limerick, Ireland. Yes. You uh, also, uh, as part of your continued professional service, uh, you were the head of the state director of health, education, and human services, and deputy secretary to uh, former Governor Mario Cuomo. Right. Uh, previously, you were the vice president at Empire Blue Cross and Blue Shield. So you have a wide experience in the private and the public sector. Can you offer any details as to what you would like to see changed that would make it easier or more efficient for you to do your job? Well, uh, one, I would like to see... Um the regulatory apparatus be simplified. We're inundated with regulation, duplicate regulations for multiple companies. There is this view, an increasing view, and it has been it's worsening over the last number of years, that we all, that many of us in healthcare are, are, can't be trusted to do the right thing unless there's some government entity looking over your shoulder all the time. So we're in a, we're in a culture of regulation and compliance. And I'm an innovator. I like to be entrepreneurial. So when you're in a culture of compliance and regulation, it's the antithesis of innovation. You, you want to break rules. You want to be able to dispense with lessons of the past. You want to be able to not be hostage to precedent. You want to be able to move forward. And you need government regulation. I'm not against that. I was a regulator in government, as you mentioned. Uh, I've been there. I know that. I was there for 12 years. But there needs to be a simplicity brought to it. And uh, that those of us in healthcare want to do the right thing. I have not yet met many people in healthcare, whether it's a doctor or a frontline staff person, who are not committed to doing the right thing. That doesn't mean it happens all the time, but their basic philosophy is, is correct. And if you allow that kind of entrepreneurship to grow without the constraints of unnecessary regulation, I think you can see wonderful things happening. Michael Dowling, if you had one regulation that you could just take a pencil through and just get rid of it, what would it be? Well, I, uh, to me, I would, on the quality area, I would pick, I, I'll answer it a little bit of a different way, I would pick six things that we should focus on. Right now, if you're running a hospital, you have hundreds of regulations, even on quality. Pick six ones, six, pick six. Nobody, if I give you 500 things to comply with, you'll, you'll document all the compliance, you'll waste your time, but it's just you have metric overload. So pick six things, like reduce infections. 
enhance mortality, right? Uh, be more customer-centric in terms of service. And then say to people, these are the three or four or six things that we want you to accomplish. Go to it. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it. I'm going to lay out the goal. You figure out innovatively how you should do it in your own circumstance and just go do it. And that's what we, that's what I try to do in our organization. Uh, you know, I often ask for forgiveness rather than permission because if you keep asking for permission, you typically won't get anything done at all. You'll be constrained in a straitjacket. You've got to be a little bit more innovative. Do you ever feel that you are in the middle between insurance companies, the actual healthcare providers, let's say doctors, and as you mentioned, frontline professionals, plus there's, of course, the patient, plus there is the government. So right there, we've just mentioned four different entities. Yeah, well, sometimes you can argue, like sometimes like being in a washing machine, but um, to me, the, the, the central focus is the customer and the patient, the patient's family. I mean, that has to be the central guiding uh, focus of the organization. And we have to be a lot more customer-centric because the world today is different. Consumerism is different. People are more knowledgeable, more educated. They're going to be telling you what they want, how they want it, when they want it. The use of technology is extraordinary. People have wearable devices, you know, um, uh, implantable devices in the future. So the whole focus is to be about you as the customer coming to me for a service, how best I can provide service to you. Now, all of the other impediments that come in on the side you know, that's, that's, that's life. You deal with it. I don't get constrained by those. I mean, in fact, I enjoy the, the hyper nature of the business. But if you keep your eye on the ball and you keep your eye on how do you provide a better care for people, keep them healthier, reduce that which shouldn't be done, manage their care better, educate them to figure out how to manage their own care. Because remember, the bulk of ill health is due to social circumstance, lifestyle and behavior, not necessarily due to the lack of medical care. But so if you focus on the customer, all of these other things uh, become easier to manage. I don't spend my time worrying about what the insurance company is doing to me every day. I get frustrated ever so often, but that's not where I spend my time. Government will frustrate me sometimes, but I typically am focused much more on the customer and also focus very much on employees. If I have happy employees, motivated employees, people who are engaged, who are comfortable with their job, customers patient satisfaction would be better because the correlation between the two. That's why I spend an awful lot of time on employee engagement, and that's why I meet with every single employee that is hired in the organization, which is about 150 people a week. This being Bloomberg Radio, we're going to return to economics at some point, <laughs> and that point is now. Yes. What can you at Northwell Health do that you haven't done or you'd like to do to reduce the, the cost of health care? I'll, to me, is uh, and something that we are working on diligently these days is to not do things that we shouldn't be doing. So, for example, not having you have tests that you don't need, not having surgery that you necessarily don't, you shouldn't have, not duplicating care if you go from one part of the organization to another that we don't duplicate what you did over here and then duplicate it another place. It's reducing variability. Rather than if you go in one place and you have X uh, diagnosis, then if you go to another place, you get the same kind of treatment. That, that's the area that we're focusing on. And we're focusing an awful lot on home care, uh, helping people stay at home, dealing with chronic illness, keeping people at home so they don't have to come to the hospital. We have a community paramedic program, for example. We have paramedics going into the home, spending time with patients to avoid them from coming to the hospital. That's all new. 
that if we and I think a lot of the big systems across the, across the country, and I'm familiar with most of them, are all focusing on those kinds of things. If you do that right over time, I believe you will uh, you will reduce um, you will reduce the increase the uh, the increase in the in the cost escalation. You will not decrease the overall amount of money we're spending because we're all getting older. Demographics and technology flies in the face. Excuse me, but my wife is not. We got to leave it there. I want to thank you very much, uh, Michael Dowling. He is the chief executive of Northwell Health. I appreciate being here. Thank you. The changing of the guard at Goldman Sachs. David Solomon set to take over as CEO for Lloyd Blankfein on October first. In our Bloomberg eleven three zero studio in New York, we have. Shri Natarajan, he's the Goldman reporter for Bloomberg News, and Eric Schatzker, an editor-at-large at at Bloomberg News uh, here in New York. Eric, um, we know know that David Solomon is an electronic music DJ. What else do we know about this guy? Ah, DJ Diesel. Yes. What do we know? Well, we know that he is not Goldman through and through, and that's because he joined the firm in 1999 out of Bear Stearns, and that makes him very different from... Lloyd Blankfein, who came into the firm much earlier with its acquisition of a commodities trading firm called Aaron, and Hank Paulson, Lloyd's predecessor, who was Goldman for his entire career. David Solomon is also not like Hank Paulson in as much as he's a leveraged finance banker. He's from business that didn't exist until the 1980s, whereas Hank was an M&A guy. So there are things about David Solomon that Goldman has never seen in its CEO before. Sri, he's, if he's from Bear Stearns, isn't that a, uh, a mixing of the clans? Is that allowed? Is that in the tribal Wall Street that we know? It's very different, isn't it? Uh, and it, it's part of Goldman's shifting trend these days, the idea of a lateral partner hire. They only used to do a few of them, you know, going back 50, 60 years. Now they've started doing a lot more of them. And the fact that now you're ready to have a CEO who whose seminal years in finance were not at Goldman Sachs is a, is a step in the direction is that the culture carriers is not such a big thing in there anymore, it would seem like. Eric, uh, you've had the chance to sit down with a variety of luminaries and leaders on Wall Street. You know, you, seriously, you have. You, you meet with them and you, know, you get to sort of get the vibe as well as what they're actually saying. Do you have any idea why is Lloyd Blankfein stepping down? He's 63. He could... Sp- been another two, three years. There. The overwhelming sense I get and others get is that this is not Lloyd's choice. There was clearly discord in the boardroom. Why was this such an inelegant succession? Because some people were rooting for David Solomon. At one point, there was some people rooting, ruling, rooting, excuse me, for Harvey Schwartz, but he lost that battle. And then David Solomon, one would have to imagine, wanted the prize as soon as possible, as soon as he became the anointed one, didn't want to wait. No, no, that part I get, No, but there was people in the boardroom who clearly were on his side, and they were sending a message through various channels. They wanted change. Yes. And it's not unreasonable to think that Goldman is due for change. Lloyd has been the CEO for 12 years. Goldman has, as of late, struggled in some of its marquee businesses, fixed income, commodities and currencies, being top of the list, and the firm has struggled to diversify its revenue base 
relative to others on Wall Street. Look at what James Gorman, for example, did with wealth management. Goldman may not go in the same direction, but Morgan Stanley diversified its revenue base and also managed to do very well in some of the businesses that Goldman had traditionally been strong in. Goldman wants to accelerate its transformation, wants to generate growth. Was Lloyd Blank find the right guy for the job? Clearly, some people did not think so. Shri, come in on how David Solomon brings a set of skills that dovetail with what Eric has just described. It, it goes back to the overall idea of whether Goldman Sachs is moving away from its roots, right? It's It's been this traditional trading powerhouse, uh, great at advising companies on doing M&A, but now they're moving away into new and varied corners of finance, making loans to retirees in Nevada and Tennessee, getting millennials to embrace uh, digital banking, doing the boring business of managing money for corporations. And they want David Solomon in charge of that, in part because he's had a history of building out various divisions. At Bear Stearns, he built out their junk bond business. He started out in his early years, he was out at Drexel, where his time overlapped with Mike Milken. But then he built out a junk bond business at Bear Stearns. He did the same at Goldman Sachs, spent a decade building out, uh, you know, as the head of their investment banking business. So he has expertise in growing businesses. And perhaps that's what the board likes in him and hopes that that will allow a new leader like Solomon to help Goldman Sachs diversify from what it's traditionally known for. I've been waiting for years to say this word on the radio, interregnum. We now have basically two, a CEO and a CEO in waiting. Eric, we got less than a minute left. Is this going to cause any clashes? Sure, it should. David Solomon needs to reshape the firm. He needs to unify Goldman Sachs. He needs to repair these uh, the, these these ruptures that, that presumably occurred in the boardroom and perhaps even in the management committee. We need to find out how that's going to happen. Does David Solomon want to dump people, for example? We know that the people in investment banking are safe because he put them there. But what happens in investment management? What happens in special situations? What happens, for example, on the trading side in equities? David Solomon may choose to reshape some of those businesses and put his people in. And others, for example, may choose to leave because if you are older than 45, you don't have a shot at being David Solomon's successor. Eric Schatzker, Sri Natarajan, thanks so much for coming into our studio today and talking squid. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. We drive to the close with D.R. Barton Jr. He's the chief technical strategist for MoneyMorning.com. They are based in Newark, Delaware, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. D.R. Barton, thanks very much for being here. I want you to dispel a couple of pieces of supposed conventional wisdom. One is that the only reason the market has moved even a little bit higher this year is because of a concentrated move in companies like Facebook, Alphabet, Netflix. That's not true, is it? 
Oh, I love dispelling conventional wisdom, <laughs> Pim. So thank you for that, uh, that lead in. And, and yes, I don't believe it's true. I think they are, they are uh, leading the way, but they are not the whole deal. And two numbers that help me to believe that. Um, number one is that um, number one is the when we look at how much they've moved up uh, and drug the S&P 500 up, if you look at that, uh, which is a weighted average, it's a it's a cap weighted average. So those bigger num- names get a bigger weighting. If we drop down and look at an, uh, a, an equal weighted index, we go from a 4.77% gain as of Friday for the normal S&P 500 weighted index to a 3.1% gain in the in the equal weighted so the the S&P is still up and it's still up pretty healthily even if they get even if Amazon gets the same weight as L Brands or Mattel all right but uh, and I understand that but I was looking at an even more maybe simplistic number which is that nearly 150 stocks in the S&P 500 have posted double digit or better gains so far this year yes and uh and and fewer and and right around 90 have posted double digit losses so we have 57 percent more stocks with double digit gains in the s&p 500 than we have uh, with double digit losses so there's a there's a bunch of stocks that are doing well it's kind of the story of the haves and the have-nots, if you will. The other interesting number is there's 400 and 265 stocks that are up for the year and 240 that are down. That's about 4.1% difference, which is about what the market's up. So I think breadth, the number of stocks that are participating in the up move, is still supportive. This conversation is way too optimistic for me. Okay, so I'm going to come in here and 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 Dr. You seem like a nice guy. We were chatting before we came on, and uh, you're you got a Uh-oh. sunny disposition. He says that just but before. It is, <laughs> it is pouring rain outside, and I am a dark cloud. What kinds of things are you concerned about? Everything is chugging so well, but it. What if it blows a gasket? What would that gasket be? What are you concerned about? Yeah, I think the the big things that we have to uh, that we have to keep an eye on it are um, are uh, in some order of importance. The uh, the I think the first thing to take us right off the rails is if we get some some negative. Uh, earnings reports from the big names. Netflix today fell, but they've recovered most of that already, a large chunk of what they lost today. Uh, With Facebook, Amazon coming out, Google, uh, Alphabet coming out really soon, if if they struggle to meet the astronomically high expectations, that could send us into another kind of 10 percentage correction. To get us to bear territory, we've got to have something like the tariff troubles really turn into trade wars. And, um, and I think there's one, lurking, there's one lurking demon out there, which is inflation. If inflation, specifically wage inflation, rears its ugly head, which it's likely to do toward the end of the year by my calculations, then the Fed's going to step in with, uh, with much sturm and dang. I want wage inflation, though. I want to make more money than I'm making right now. So aren't we kind of arguing against uh, the well-being of, of the consumer who is 70% of the GDP? 
Well, I think the the bigger the bigger problem is that that we're the way we report wage inflation is a little bit antiquated. So we're comparing it versus last year's numbers, and we don't get some numbers that will make that number show up ugly until about November. That's why that's a it's a it's a an employment report to keep our eye on for that reason. But you're right, you know, people we've had the economy doing really well. It's a robust economy. Most everyone would would agree with that right now. And the and the wage earner has not participated as much as they should. It's time for that wage inflation to start ticking up. But if it ticks way up, then the Fed's going to step in and uh, and uh, and pour out the punch bowl. We currently trade at twenty eight oh nine on the S and P five hundred. It's up eleven and a half points right now. How important is that twenty eight hundred level? Yeah, that I think that is a a line in the sand, Pim. That if you look back at our highs from from February when we had the rebound off of those off of that big drop, you look in March we had an, we hit it again. June we hit that number again and couldn't penetrate it. Today it looks like we're going to close through it pretty handily. Again, a, a resistance level to me really isn't broken until you get a few closes above there. If we can stay above there for a few more days this week, I think that's one of the most bullish technical signs that we'll get right now. What do you think? Twenty-eight seventy-eight. That's the uh, that's the the all-time high. I right? think I think if we can if we can close two more times above here, it's a one-way train to that number to that all-time high. Uh, we have about a minute left. And I'm going to stay on the pessimistic uh, t- <laughs> tip here. Just Netflix. Um, wh- wh- what is, is Are expectations too high, or is Netflix just not doing that well right now? I think there is going to be some real heck to pay inside of Netflix. I think one of the big issues that we had with this earnings report was the new subscribers numbers, and they missed by 1.3 million uh, new subscribers. They put on five. They were expecting 6.2, so they missed by 1.2. Um, and that they've blamed that on internal projecting. And I think they came back and they said, oh, we're going to drop guidance down to five so that they can take the pressure off of that. And I think that's why this rebound is going to happen. Thanks very much for being with us. D.R. Barton, Jr., Chief Technical Strategist, MoneyMorning.com. Roll out the barrel and lend me your ears. I like beer. It makes me a jolly Who doesn't like beer? Martin Roper likes beer, at least I think he does. We'll have to ask him. He's the former president and chief executive officer of the Boston Beer Company. That's the manufacturer of Sam Adams. He's based in Boston, but you know what? He's right here next to me in Bloomberg 1130 Studio in New York. Welcome to the show, Martin. Oh, delighted to be here. Do you like to drink beer, even after years and years and years of being a beer maker? I do love beer. Uh, beer is an incredible beverage with a lot of great variety of flavors. Um, and so, yes, I love everything about beer. I want to talk to you about not just beer, but two of the other important products at uh, the Boston Beer Company. This has to do with the, the twisted iced tea. Twisted twisted tea, tea the hard right? iced tea. Exactly. With a kick. And, and the angry orchard. Sure. Right? The, the number one hard cider in the U.S. All right. Now, you see, the way that you were able to say that indicates to me that these are pretty popular products. 
Um, they are. They're um, certainly. Let's talk about Angry Orchard first. We launched in 2010-11 and quickly became the number one hard cider in the U.S. Uh, and I think maybe the fifth largest cider in the world. So actually, a huge success story. The American drinker was ready for a sweet, flavorful apple crisp taste, and we were able to deliver that. Twisted Tea we launched in 2001. It's a uh, alcoholic hard iced tea, five percent alcohol, and it has a very loyal following among people who like to work outdoors and 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 fish and and go snowmobiling or other sorts of things. It's very refreshing. It's non-carbonated, uh, very loyal following. Uh, not so much in the cities, but more in sort of rural uh, urban markets. All right. The reason I asked is because do you believe, and, and I understand you're going to have growth in the beer segment and the more craft beers and IPAs and so on, but is the real growth going to come from these newer brand extensions? Um, the, the question is around Boston Beer. I think it has a wonderfully diversified portfolio and it can take advantage of all the opportunities available to it. I do think craft will continue to be healthy, but it's very competitive and the barriers to entry are very low. And you can, you and I could start a small uh, brewery in your backyard and we'd have a little tap room going. So very, very hard. But I think if with a focus on quality and flavor and innovation, um, you, there is a lot of upside still in craft beer and for Sam Adams. But we built a diversified beverage company, and we have Twisted Tea, you mentioned, uh, um, Angry Orchard, you mentioned. We also have Truly Spiked and Sparkling, which is a alcoholic sparkling water that is currently, uh, I believe, doing very well. Obviously, I don't have current information. I can just read what's happening uh, in, the, in the trade press. Um, so there's firing on all cylinders right now. Now, I remember a time when uh, the beer can was the, the way to drink beer. And we're talking about the, the general industry, not just Sam Adams or the Boston beer uh, products. And then all of a sudden there was this, you know, backlash against the, the, uh, the, the aluminum can, a tin can even. And everybody wanted to drink beer in glass. But now it's kind of come back. The whole beer can thing has come back. A lot of the craft breweries are providing their product in aluminum. Now we've got the the tariffs coming up on aluminum. Are we going to be going back to the glass? Yeah, I don't think so. I think one of the nice things that happened in craft was a lot of these small craft brewers couldn't actually afford bottle filling lines, but can filling lines were cheaper from a capital perspective. And so they went to cans first rather than go to bottles. And they have that equipment in place, and that's what they're going to produce their, their beers in. Um, and then as craft got more popular and, and across more drinking occasions, people started looking for cans of craft to go hiking with and camping with and to be environmentally correct with. Um, most of craft is still sold in the bottles, but cans is a big piece of it. I don't see uh, tariffs changing changing that. Can you speak about packaging and the way packaging has evolved to become as important almost as the product itself? Yeah, I think... Um you know, packaging is incredibly important. The visual impact on shelf or indeed the tap handle in a pub are enormously important to convey a message about your brand and to attract and attract eyes. And so, you know, certainly having great beer or cider or tea is a prerequisite to, to winning, but you've got to win at point of purchase. Does it also include things like the special editions that come out on a seasonal basis? Um, I think the, the seasonal beers add a variety and a, a different opportunity to try and new messaging, and it brings drinkers back to a brand, so incredibly helpful. The special releases allow you to showcase skills that require more money and perhaps are the, the, where the beverages are a little more selective on the occasion and can provide a great impact on shelf, like a big bottle with foil on it can provide, you know, in a beer section, everyone goes, wow, what's that? 
you started at uh, at the Boston Beer Company in 2001. How has the beer consumer changed in that time? Oh, that's sort of a great question. Over the you know that 17 years, we've seen the consumer become much more open to different flavors. I remember when I started at Boston Beer, that even Boston Lager was challenging for most people, and it was too hoppy. Today, everyone loves uh, West Coast IPAs, double IPAs, triple IPAs, and and the flavor intensity has completely changed. And and part of that, I think, is is that the the young and drinkers, obviously legal and drinking age, uh, have grown up with a much greater variety of beverages in their own lives, from carbonated. Beverages beverages to sparkling waters to Gatorade to Red Bull to Starbucks, that generation is now hitting legal drinking age, and they want a wider variety of uh, flavors in their alcoholic beverages. Give you 30 seconds to explain. How do you go from an engineering with honors degree and a master of engineering from Trinity Hall, University of Cambridge, to beer? Well, I think the bottom answer of that is the legal drinking age in the UK was 18. We had a pub in our college. I was there every night. Yes, I graduated, but I had a lot of fun doing so. I think we're going to go for a beer now, aren't we, Pim? Well, I think that you're going to go for a beer. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Thank you very much, Martin Roper, former president and CEO of the Boston Beer Company in Boston. Um, it really, you know, it's it's like 130 degrees, and beer is a good drink, you know, if you don't overdo it. But that, I would never do that. No, don't do that, okay? Okay. All right. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.